should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known. I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. Please join me in prayer. O Lord, what wretched beings we are. In our pride, we recoil at the idea that we are honestly as sinful as we are. In shame, we run and hide, doing everything we can to avoid the light of your word, as it illuminates the darkest places in our lives. In the darkness, our sins don't seem quite that sinful. I pray that you would open our hearts this morning to receive the illumination of your word, that we would welcome the light that brings contrast between good and evil, and that your light would guide us into all truth. Speak to us through your servant Jeff as he teaches us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. Well, if you ever find yourself in need of an ultrasound in the future, you will discover that whatever the news you receive from that ultrasound, news of a growing young life and a young mother, news about a blockage in your arteries or stones in your gallbladder or a lump in your breast tissue or, in my case, a nodule on your thyroid that needs to be removed. Whatever the news, good or bad, happy or sad, the ultrasound is only designed to enlighten you to your actual condition, to reveal what is true. It only has diagnostic utility and will not cure you of anything that is found to be true about you. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul said, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law, because all the law can do is reveal what is true about you. All it can do is diagnose the problem. It cannot lift you to obey it. It cannot lift you to meet its standard. Now, Paul has told the Romans that this generally is the function of God's Old Testament law. Here in verses 7 through 13, we learn of another function that it has. But leading up to that, Paul has already made his case. He has told believers that we have been freed from the condemnation of sin, sin's penalty, which is death. God's judgment of sin is death, and we have been set free from that condemnation through the justifying grace of God by faith apart from works. Hallelujah. Paul has also told us in no uncertain terms in chapter 6 that we are freed from sin's control, from its power over our lives. 
And therefore, we are to count ourselves, consider ourselves dead to sin, having been crucified, buried, and raised to life with Christ in baptism of the Holy Spirit. We walk, he says in chapter 6, in the newness of life. That is resurrection life brought into our present by faith and by the Holy Spirit. And now in chapter 7, he means to tell us that we are free from sin's collaborator, sin's partner, The law now becomes something of an unwilling accomplice, an unwitting co-conspirator through which sin brings death to me, and the law exacerbates the problem because sin working through the law kills us. Remember, guns don't kill people. People kill people with guns. Cars don't run over people. People run over people with cars. And the law, which is good and holy and righteous and spiritual, he says, doesn't kill us. Sin, working through the law, brings death to us. Now, if that's true, then why does Paul appear to describe himself as being hopelessly defeated and enslaved to sin? Quick read through these passages. That's, this, is what, this is how it appears. A face value reading of verses 14 through 22 will primarily be in these texts and these verses today, or 14 through 25. Let me just read to you the first six verses here. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with, that the law is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin who lives in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my fleshly nature. For the desire to do good is within me, but there is no ability, no capacity to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is sin who lives in me. These uh, verses have caused great consternation among theologians and interpreters and churchmen alike. And so we're going to look at the three historical interpretation of these verses, three primary views historically of what are called the wretched man verses. Who is the wretched man or the I of 14 through 25? Well, the first view we'll cover is that Paul is describing the best possible or the optimal Christian life. This, what we just read, is as good as it gets for you. On this view, Paul is here describing a Christian's normal struggle with sin. When Paul says in the first person, I am unspiritual, I do not understand, I do what I do not want to do, this really does describe the experience of everyday Christianity. And given Paul's high level of faith and his high commitment to Jesus and his high obedience and understanding of God's Word… For Paul to express that this is his current present frustration just means that for you and I, mere mortals, this just is as good as it gets. That is the Christian life. A second view says that Paul is describing a suboptimal Christian life. This is not the best possible Christian life. This is a suboptimal Christian life. On this perspective, Paul is not describing the Christian life. He is describing a Christian life. He's describing a Christian life, 
A person who, without a daily reliance on the Spirit's power, which is chapter 8, finds themselves once again enslaved and entrapped in areas of sin that indeed dog us unless we become surrendered to the sanctification process. Paul doesn't want this to describe your Christian life, but it will if you resubmit yourself again to the slavery to sin. So, on this view, this camp says, no, Paul is not describing the optimal Christian life, but a suboptimal life. Third view, well, Paul is not describing the Christian life at all. Paul is here describing the pre-Christian life as a Torah-observant Jew. And on this interpretation, Paul merely continues speaking in solidarity, that is to say, with one voice with the Jew that he introduced in the first 12 verses, the Jew that has been taught not to covet but cannot do so. And so he speaks in solidarity with one voice, with his fellow, with his kinsmen according to the flesh, his fellow Jews who had received the law, who loved the law, who delight in their inner man to obey it, yet they find themselves hopelessly defeated and unable to obtain the righteousness according to the law that they so desperately pursued. Proponents of this view point out that Paul here describes a person whose experience is very different from the prescribed experience to the Christian of chapter 6 and chapter 8. So, I want to say two things about these verses. First, none of these views is a matter of Christian orthodoxy, meaning I do not want to bind any of your consciences to my particular perspective today, but two, I am going to share with you my perspective. (laughs) Surprise. So, what view do I hold? Well, I hold the third view. I think if this passage, if these verses are interpreted in their context, through starting with chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, I think it becomes quite clear that what Paul is describing here is neither the optimal nor suboptimal Christian experience. He's not describing the Christian life, nor is he describing a possible Christian life under the slavery of sin. No, he is describing his life before Christ. Now, in order for me to make this case today, I need to address the degree to which a believer can expect to still struggle with temptation. And then I'm going to return to the arguments for an unregenerate I, an unregenerate wretched man of 14 to 25, and then address some common objections to that. If you want to follow along with me, you can track with our outline, which is stuffed in your bulletin today. First thing we want to say is that believers should continue to resist sin so long as they remain in a fallen world. You should expect to continue to resist sin so long as we remain in a fallen body and a fallen world. The fact of the matter is that Christians find themselves in a constant battle, warring with impulses of the flesh, and they are internal. Folks, I wish that were not true. (laughs) I wish I could assure you that if you just followed a certain regimen of prayer and Bible study and service with your spiritual gifts, church membership, etc., etc., that someday you'll just be totally free in this life from the temptation to lust for things you do not have, to covet other people's stuff, to feel a murderous anger at the people who cut you off on the freeway, or pop off with your mouth and gossip, or pop off with your mouth uh, speaking disrespectfully to your spouse or to a parent, etc., etc. But that would just be an empty and false promise. You will never be free of these things. Not until Jesus comes for you or you go home with Jesus. 
short of dying, the soul will be released, or that is the soul being released from the body of death. Paul calls it the body of sin or the body of death. Or being resurrected at the end of the age, that is receiving a new immortal body which is impervious to sin, impervious to temptation, impervious to disease, you and I will resist sin. Why is that? Well, here's why we struggle with sin. Number one, here's what the Scripture says about that. Number one, we struggle. This is kind of a duh point, but we struggle against sin. We still do. Hebrews 12, 3 through 4 says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. Verse 4, in struggling against sin, believer, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus did. He resisted the devil's temptation all the way up to the end. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He's there, he's praying, and what does is, what is his human nature pray? Not his divine nature, his human nature. What, is, what does he pray? Father, if it be thy will, if it's possible in any way, let this cup of suffering that I'm about to drink pass before me. Just, just let me skip this, right? So he was tempted to forego, to not drink the cup of suffering that was his purpose, that was God's will and his plan. And what he tells you and I is not to grow weary, nor should we throw in the towel because we haven't struggled with sin as much as Jesus has. The believer still struggles. Number two, temptations are common and they can come upon us suddenly. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. Temptations are common and they can come upon us suddenly. He says, so whoever thinks he stands, be careful. Don't be prideful. For a person claiming perfection... In this life, for a person claiming to have reached sort of super spiritual Christianity, the super disciple phase, be careful. The one who thinks he stands must be careful so that, lest he fall. No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will allow you to be tempted. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear up under it. Understand, that is the temptations that come upon us are common to the human experience, and they can come upon you. Has temptation ever come upon you? And you're frustrated because you're like, man, I was doing good <laughs> today. I had my devotions. I, I spent some time in God's Word. I had a few good spiritual, uh, encouraging conversations with believers. I, I spent a lot of time this morning praying, and all of a sudden, temptation as I'm driving to work is coming upon me because that person cut me off in traffic. Again, my, my particular problem, but you have your own. <laughs> Number three, resisting temptation is possible with alertness and prayer. Otherwise, why would Jesus say to the disciples, Mark 14, 38, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Ah, my flesh is weak. In Romans chapter 6, he says, because of the weakness of your flesh. In Romans chapter 7, he tells us that our flesh is weak. In Romans chapter 8, he tells us we are weak and the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Our flesh is, in fact, weak, but the spirit is willing. But what did Jesus require of the disciples? Vigilance and prayer to guard against falling into temptation. And number four, Christians are tempted to constantly resubmit to sin slavery. Christians are tempted to constantly resubmit or submit again to sin slavery. This is the problem going on in the church of Galatia. 
right? Paul has to write them because they're resubmitting their lives to a yoke of slavery, and he has to say in chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. In context, that's freedom from the law. Stand firm then and don't resubmit. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why? Because you don't have to. Chapter 6, verse 1, brothers and sisters, but if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, you who are spiritually mature, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Understand, a Christian can fall into temptation. A Christian can fall into a pattern of failure. A Christian can develop a habit. A Christian can resubmit themselves to the sinful nature to become again a slave to its whims. That is possible. Christians have an ongoing struggle with temptation and sin. But is that what Paul is talking about in chapter 7, Romans 7, 14 through 25? I would have to say in context, the answer cannot be yes. It must be no. Paul is not here describing struggling with sin. Paul is explicitly describing a state of being enslaved to sin, which he just told the believers they no longer are. Number two, believers should no longer live hopelessly defeated by sin. Now, again, we struggle. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes those who are mature have to grab us by our collars and pull us out of it. That happens. That's possible in the Christian life. Otherwise, why would Paul warn them against it? But this passage is not describing that. This passage is describing a person who is hopelessly defeated by sin, who has no ability whatsoever to obey God's commands and His righteous decrees, and this person is hopelessly enslaved to the flesh. How could this be true? Well, the first point that Paul makes here is that we are no longer under the dominion of sin or in or of the flesh. Romans chapter 7, verse 5. Go back to verse 5. He says, for when we were in the flesh. Now, here he doesn't mean in the body because they're still in their bodies. The phrase in the flesh is the Greek phrase te sarki, and it is what is called a dative of sphere, a dative. Uh, it communicates that this person when, or these people were in the sphere of or in the realm of, under the dominion of the flesh, the simple passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear the fruit for death. So let's recap quickly his case for the Christian victory. Romans 6, 6 through 7, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him. That is the old, sinful, unbelieving self. You before you came to Christ. We were crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin, under the dominion of sin, might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is free from sin. It's quite clear. We have died to sin and are set free from its reign and its dominion over us. Verse 14, he says again, for sin will not rule over you because you are no longer under the, the dispensation of the law, which is powerless to help you obey it. But now you're under the dispensation of grace, which enables you to live according to God's Word. You and I are under the dispensation of grace, God's empowering, enabling grace. 
Verse 17, but thank God that although you used to be slaves to sin, when were you a slave to sin? You used to be one. You obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were, hand, you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, have you been set free from sin? Paul thinks you have been. You became enslaved instead to the pattern of righteousness. Chapter 7, verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, that is in the realm, in the sphere, under the dominion of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear the fruit for death. So when Paul uses this phrase, in the flesh, or fleshly, or unspiritual, he is referring to the believer's past in the sphere, in the realm, under the dominion or the domain of the fleshly sinful nature, under its control and under its power. Paul said the old man was crucified with Christ so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. No power over you. None. Verse 14, who is this person then? Who is this wretched man? Paul tells us who he is. For we know that the law is of the Spirit. The law is spiritual. But I am where? Of the flesh. Why? Because I'm sold as a slave under sin. Notice the slavery language. Notice the fact that this person is not, uh, being of the flesh is not a past state for this person. It's a present state for this person. Verse 22, for in my inner self I delight in God's law. Well, so did the psalmist. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the parts or the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. That is my knowledge of Torah law that I have in my soul, in my mind. And then what does it do? It takes me prisoner. It takes me prisoner. I'm a captive to the law of sin and the parts of my body. Verse 25, so then with my mind, I am serving. The word serving there is the same word for enslavement. It means captive, enslaved to the law of God. But with my flesh, I'm enslaved to the law of sin. Didn't he just repeatedly say that the believer is not of or in or under the realm of the flesh, its dominion? And that we used to be slaves sold into the bondage under sin's reign. So how can he now be saying, how can Paul be saying that this is true for you Christians, but it is not true for me? But that's precisely what he would be claiming in verses 14 through 25 if it describes Paul and his present Christian experience. Again, we see a person who is held captive, enslaved to sin, in the realm or under the dominion of the flesh, and a person who is enslaved to the law who has no ability whatsoever to obey the law. And so there are two things he says the Christian has been set free of. The Christian in chapter 6 has been set free from the power of sin, and they've been set free, chapter 7, 1 through 12, they've been set free from the law which enables sin, but it doesn't enable you. Here's verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3, back up a little bit. He says, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law. The whole point of him bringing up the marriage or the leveret marriage illustration is to say, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you you are also put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ. You have died to that former relationship. Verse 6, but now having been released from the law, what have you been released from? Chapter 6, you were released from the power of sin over you. Chapter 7, you're released from the powerlessness of the law, which enables sin, but it doesn't enable you. It diagnoses your problem, but it doesn't empower you to fix the problem. 
since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old way or the old letter of the law. The believer is to no longer live in bondage to sin and the law because we have been set free from the sphere, the realm, the dominion of sin. So now let me bring in next week's sermon from chapter 8. The believer is to live victorious over sin because we are in the Spirit. Now his contrast here between chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 is life in the flesh, right? Life governed by or under the dominion of the flesh and life in or under the dominion of God's Holy Spirit in reigning grace. Chapter 8 is the resolution to chapter 7, 14 through 25. It says in verse 8, those who are in the flesh, where are they? Well, they're in the sphere, they're in the realm, they're under the dominion of the flesh. They cannot please God. You, however, are not in the sphere, in the realm, under the dominion of the flesh. But where are you? You're in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead. He just gave that illustration in chapter 7, 1 through 6. The body is dead. Then he who raised Christ from the dead will also uh, bring your mortal bodies to life. So the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, are you obligated still to live according to the whims of your flesh? No. Because where are you? You're in the Spirit, not in the flesh, not under the dominion of the flesh. He makes this very clear. The person in verses 14 through 25 of chapter 7 is a description of the pre-Christian life, which is a continuation of his description of himself in past tense terms in chapter 7. And chapters eight, chapter 8, 1 through 12 is the resolution to chapter 7. And we're no longer slaves to sin. So let me answer a few objections quickly. There are many who would say, well, I just feel like 14 through 25 describe my Christian experience. Has it ever described yours? I've seen people who have literally slapped phrases from that passage as a bumper sticker on their car. And as your pastor, I want to walk up and tear that off of your car. Because it shouldn't be because that should not describe your Christian life. I would say that it, since verses 14 through 25 describe a person who is in bondage and is sold as a slave to sin and who is in the realm of the flesh, who is under the dominion of the flesh, hopelessly frustrated and unable, literally incapable of obeying God, I would say that you need to leave the elementary teachings of the Christian faith and begin to grow in your understanding of a Spirit-empowered Christian life, of a Spirit-enabled sanctification that allows you day by day, one glory to another, to be transformed in the image and likeness of the Son. What about Paul's use of the present tense in first person? I do not do what I want to do, I do not understand, and so forth. Yeah, that's challenging. Paul uses the exact same construction, though, in Romans chapter 3. It's the same structure between Romans 3 and Romans 7. You can study it later. His structure is he begins with the law. He begins his argument with solidarity. 
He begins by talking about the law. And he asks the question in Romans 3.1, what advantage then is there being a Jew or having the covenant of circumcision? Much in every way. In chapter 3, he begins with the law of circumcision. In chapter 7, he begins with the law of leveret marriage and the law of uh, coveting, the prohibition against coveting. He then, in both chapters, moves on to diatribe questions where he puts questions in the mouths of his imaginary Jewish opponents. In Romans 3, 5 through 6, he asks, if God is, un- is God unrighteous to inflict wrath upon me then since my disobedience to the law abounds to his glory? Heavens, no. But in Romans 6, he asks the question, is the law sin? No. Of course it isn't. It's good. And then from there, he enters the Jewish experience in the first person singular. Look at Romans 3, 7. He says, but if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? That's first person singular. But it's not a present description of Paul. Paul says three times in the New Testament, Romans 9, 1, he says, I am not lying. 2 Corinthians eleven thirty one. he tells the, the Corinthians that God knows that he is not lying about his gospel. In 1 Timothy 2.7, he tells them that he never lied about his apostleship. So, does this describe Paul in his present state? No. Paul is not a liar. He insists that he is not. Does it describe Paul as a condemned sinner? No. Not if Romans 8.1 applies to Paul. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is Paul in Christ Jesus? Yes. So, Romans 3, 7, though it is in the first person singular, does not describe Paul in the present Christian state, and the structure of 3 and 7 are exactly the same. The next uh, objection is, doesn't Paul thank God that he serves God with the law of his mind and the law of sin with his flesh? Absolutely not, he does not. (laughs) He thanks God that Jesus delivers him from this wretched condition. To reiterate, the word serve means to be enslaved. And so he's not praising God for the dilemma of being a slave to the law. He just said believers were released from slavery to the law. He's not praising God for being a slave to his flesh. He just said in chapter 6 that we've been set free from enslavement to the flesh. Paul asks, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue this wretched man from this hopeless condition? The resolution to verses 1 through 24 is not 25, it's Romans 8, 1 and following. And that's next week's sermon. And we'll get there. The next objection is, can't a non-Christian really delight in the law? Can a non-Christian really delight in their inner being, in their inner man, their soul? with the law? Wouldn't that describe Paul in his Christian state, not an Old Testament Jew? Well, not if you believe the psalmist. The word, the phrase, delight in the law or delight in your precepts occurs in the Psalms over a dozen times. It occurs in Psalm 119 eight times, six to eight times, depending on how you read that. And the psalmist says, I delight In your law, I delight in your precepts. Paul is just pulling this language out of the New Testament. Why? Because he's He's resonating with the Jew. He's trying to reach out to his Jewish brothers to say, you know this is our experience. No matter how much you want to be righteous according to the law, you know you can't. And no matter how faithful you want to be to it, you know ultimately you fail it. That's why you need Yom Kippur. That's why you need the Day of Atonement every year to atone for those sins you didn't, where you didn't make it. 
And Paul says, even though in your inner man you delight with the law, you delight in its precepts because you know in your mind, you know in your heart it's true. Paul says, this is a hopeless defeat, a hopeless frustration. So Paul is here describing the pre-Christian Jewish life, knowing the law, do not covet, delighting in it, being hopelessly frustrated by his inability to keep it to its exacting moral standards as a means of obtaining righteousness. However, I do want to say this. I do want to say that the passage may describe the Christian's feelings as well. Again, back to that first objection. If it does describe you today, and you're here this morning, and you say, actually, that's just how I feel. I feel just completely unable. No ability to obey God's Word. I feel like a defeated disciple. Half the time, I don't even think I'm a Christian. I wonder if I am. I want to say you're in the right place today, because this is a grace and truth place. And we want to speak the truth to you. And as the spiritual brothers among you, we want to grab you (laughs) And we want to bring you along. And where do we want to bring you? Well, we don't want you to languish in chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. We want to move you on to chapter 8. And when we get there, it's going to blow your mind. And you're going to see that you're not alone. You're not just a person who knows the law, delights in it, wants to do it, but can't do it. You're a person who has been filled and deluged and empowered by God's enabling, empowering presence. God has literally invaded your life with enabling presence. And the same grace that saved you will train you for godliness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. This difficult passage, it's a difficult text, it's difficult literature. But as we come across it, Lord God, there are times when in our flesh, in our angst, in our feelings of defeat, we look at this passage and say, yeah, that was probably me today. But Father, we thank you that we are no longer under the realm of the flesh, sold as a slave into sin, but instead we have been released and freed from sins and the flesh's control and dominance over our life, and we thank you that we are now in the reign of the Spirit, the reign of grace and life and peace in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you have really been struggling, you've just really resubmitted to a yoke of slavery under the law, which is powerless to lift you, would you just begin your confession this morning? Confess your heart to the Lord. God, we confess all that we are. God, we confess that our spirit is willing and our flesh is just weak. And in our struggle with sin, even though we haven't struggled to the point of shedding blood, God, we, we do feel like we failed at times. And so we come to you and we confess that. And we confess our failures, we confess our sin, but we also confess what is true. And that you have moved, that is that you have moved us into a new realm, into a new dominion, into the rule and reign of your grace and your spirit. And God, may we draw on the resources of your word. May we draw on the resources of the Holy Spirit so that we may walk in the newness of life, not according to the old way of the law, the law alone, but so that we may walk according to the resurrection power of the spirit, which you have brought into our present by faith. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.